Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. New Bedford, Massachusetts is a city that honors and capitalizes on its seafaring history and one big fishtail in particular. Uh, Moby Dick is definitely, you know, part of a new resurgence. There's such, such a huge interest in it right now. It's just astounding. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankoski. We'll dig into that history and also look at something that's new on the wind for the city. Newer than jet stream in the atmosphere, and it creates this dynamic, sustainable, renewable energy wind source. We'll hear about a scandal surrounding a Vermont sheriff, including some of the clues uncovered. There were purchases for crazy stuff like books for banjos for beginners and cotton underwear. And in Cambridge, a place for Palestinian Americans to tell their stories. It really makes me feel like I'm a part of something larger than I am, which um, doesn't happen often as a Palestinian living in the diaspora. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. Attorney General Jeff Sessions gave a speech recently to the National Sheriff's Association. Since our founding, the independently elected sheriff has been the people's protector uh, who keeps law enforcement close to and accountable to people through the elected process. The office of sheriff is a critical part of of the Anglo-American heritage of law enforcement. We must never erode this historic office. What he said prompted many shocked observers to wonder where that leaves people of color within that heritage. It also put a pretty harsh spotlight on the job of sheriff. Most New England states have elected sheriffs, law enforcement officers who are elected at the county level. But New England is not a place with really strong county government. Connecticut, in fact, doesn't even have sheriffs. And if you ask someone in New England who their sheriff is, Even if they voted for that sheriff, you'll probably get a, I'm not sure. But if voters aren't holding these elected officials accountable, then who is? Vermont Public Radio's investigative reporter Emily Corwin dug into this question for the VPR podcast Brave Little State, where she found one especially curious case. Why would a sheriff's department that does not have a canine unit be buying pet food and pet beds and pet supplies? Oh, that's a good question. We'll get back to that in a minute. But first, we wanted to invite Emily back to the program for a little Sheriff's 101. Emily, welcome back to Next. Happy to be here. First of all, what exactly do sheriffs do in Vermont? How does their function differ from from state and local police? So in Vermont, uh, sheriffs have really two primary jobs. First, to transport inmates between jail or prison and the courts. And then second, uh, they deliver summons. And other than that, everything that they do is really through contracts. Um, but those two, you know, priority jobs are funded by the state. And then, you know, their other jobs are uh, contracts with towns to provide law enforcement. So you might have a town that doesn't have the resources to fund its own police department. They can hire the county sheriff uh, to, to do, you know, some degree of patrolling for them. Are, are there any qualifications you need to be eligible to actually run for sheriff? 
So this is interesting. You know, most law enforcement personnel in Vermont um, and in most places have to have training, a certain level of training and to receive a certificate in order to be law enforcement officers. And it's true that if a sheriff is going to be performing law enforcement duties, they need that training and that certificate. But you can get elected sheriff and not get trained and not be certified and serve in an administrative capacity only, basically like, you know, being the CEO without, you know, patrolling the streets. And um, and so, you know, it's possible, although pretty rare, that a sheriff will not be a certified law enforcement officer and still hold that office. So, so I'm going to play a piece of the reporting you did for Brave Little State. You tell the story of a sheriff who basically got away with embezzlement, a, a lot of embezzlement. So, so set the story up for us. It basically starts with the idea that in 1993, um, lawmakers began requiring Vermont sheriffs to participate in biannual audits. So every two years, they have to be audited by an outside firm, and that audit gets sent to the state auditor. And um, in 2006, the state auditor got an anonymous tip that something wasn't right at the Wyndham County Sheriff's Department. I talked to Randy Brock, who was at that point the state auditor. Now he's a state senator, and, and he told me the story. The county sheriff at the time was a woman named Sheila Prue. If Brock knows who sent the tip, he won't tell me. The letter, he says, alleged a variety of misconduct uh, involving money, involving the use of uh, equipment, automobiles, and so on. Brock began to investigate. And eventually we collected boxes and boxes of records. Uh, We collected every financial record that we could find in the department and then proceeded to begin analyzing them. Credit card receipts, payroll, accounting, gas cards. Brock and his team dug through it all. As Brock's fraud investigators went through the boxes, they kept finding credit card receipts that didn't make any sense. Why would a sheriff's department that does not have a canine unit be buying pet food and pet beds and pet supplies? There were purchases for underwear and clothing, handwritten checks Sheila Prue had made out to herself. Uh, There were cell phones that were issued uh, to the sheriff's domestic partner and and the sheriff's uh, child. All told, Brock concluded Prue had misused more than $60,000. He published the details in a report and sent that to the attorney general's office, to the feds, to the sheriff's association. And of course, it got picked up by the press. I was astonished. Bob Audet had been a reporter with the Brattleboro Reformer for maybe a year when he got a hold of Brock's report outlining the allegations. The few interactions I had with Sheila, I never would have thought that she was doing this. There were purchases for crazy stuff like books for banjos for beginners and cotton underwear. I should say, we wanted to talk to Sheila Prue herself about all this, and we did reach out to her attorney a few times, but she didn't call back. I think people were just stunned at the audacity or the, I mean, once it all came out, it was like there was, it was almost the incompetence was the incompetence at even covering up the embezzlement. Even after the report hit the press, and even after lawmakers asked her to, Prue refused to resign. Again, Randy Brock. Well, we suggested that she recuse herself from the financial operations of the department until such time as the ship could be righted. Uh, And uh, she declined to do that. Eventually, the state charged Prue with a handful of crimes. Audet and others covered the case. There was felony-level embezzlement and two misdemeanors. 
Now, the courts can't force an elected sheriff to resign. According to Vermont statute, a sheriff can return to office even after going to jail. But the attorney general's office offered Prue a pretty sweet deal. If she pleaded guilty, agreed to resign, and paid the county back $36,000, she could have her felony record expunged. And Prue agreed. She put down $10,000 toward her restitution. She resigned. She pleaded guilty. And then the story took a bizarre turn. You know, there was rumors about who made the donation. I, I was never able to track it down. Bob Audet, the reporter, says an anonymous donor paid the remaining $26,000. The donation, too, was like, what? How? Well, that's really nice of someone, but they do know that she stole the money, right? I mean, that's what embezzlement is. And she pleaded guilty. After the donation, Prue's felonies were erased from the court record. Like, literally. If you look at the first charge in her court file, count one is just a blank page. Even state auditor Randy Brock told me he couldn't talk about what happened after he submitted the audit report. To the state, the felony never happened. Prue never did any time. But with her resignation, the county could move on. That's Emily Corwin of VPR reporting from the podcast Brave Little State. She joins us again now. So, Emily, a law enforcement official breaks the law, and then in exchange for her resignation, she she gets to walk away with a clean record. Was the attorney general's office following the law when they offered that plea deal to Prue? Well, sure. I mean... The prosecutors are allowed to offer, you know, whatever deal makes sense to them to, uh, you know, a defendant. And in this case, I think that they were looking back at Vermont history at different, you know, cases when sheriffs had maybe appeared to mess up or had messed up and and how hard it is. I, I suspect that the AG had realized how hard it is to get them to resign, even if they had convicted her and and she had even done time and gone to jail or prison. Once she got out, if it was still her term, if her term was still, um, you know, happening, she could just return to office. I suspect, I don't know this, that their goal was, you know, first and foremost to get a resignation. And so by giving her a deal she would agree to that included her resigning, uh, they, they could achieve that. And perhaps they were focusing more on allowing the county to be able to, you know, get a functioning sheriff in there and focusing less on what otherwise might be seen as a fair sentence. You, you talked to another sheriff named Roger Marcoux, who, who said the most important part of the job was business skills. And this is a case in which a government agency is run, well, like a business. Can you tell us a little bit more about what he means there? Sure. So the way that it works in Vermont is the state gives sheriffs sort of a baseline salary for themselves and a deputy. So the sheriff himself gets approximately $80,000 a year. Um, and with that, they have to operate, you know, their whole office. And Marcoux says it's it's nowhere near enough money. And so to sort of make up the difference, um, sheriffs will contract. Sheriffs will contract, you know, private law enforcement security type services. They will um, contract with state agencies. So, for example, Marcoux will work with the Department of Mental Health in Vermont, but the Department of Mental Health then has to pay the sheriff a separate fee. And the way the way it ends up working is by statute, sheriffs can take home up to 5% of any of these contracts. And so even though 
the state is paying Marku and his fellow sheriffs about $80,000 a year. He is, you know, so entrepreneurial that he told me he takes home $150,000 a year, um, or at least he did last year. I, I think he, t- he told me over the phone, like, his goal is not to make more than the governor. <laughs> so after all of this, uh, Emily, do you think that the position of sheriff is, is open to kind of the, the misdeeds that you've uncovered more than typical law enforcement, either at the state or local level, would be? I do think that, you know, when when you think about an elected official and the kind of oversight that elections are supposed to provide, it has a lot to do with public scrutiny. You know, elections are based on the idea that invo- that voters are informed. And I think sheriff is often down at the bottom of the ballot. It's somebody people may not know a lot about in their community. And yet the sheriff has a lot of power over people's lives and well-being and has a lot of money in Vermont coming in and out of those uh, offices. And so I do think it's sort of like an amount of power that might in other uh, public officials who are elected might be met with more public scrutiny. (laughs) And in fact, when we were doing this reporting and talking to people like Randy Brock, the state auditor, most people pointed to the press as, you know, one of the primary ways that we have to hold sheriffs accountable. Um, And so I think, you know, it it sort of backs up that idea that when you've got an elected official, you really need eyes on them in order to make the electoral process sort of function the way it's supposed to. Emily Corwin is investigative reporter and editor at Vermont Public Radio. As always, Emily, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, John. Want to learn more about sheriffs? Well, you can listen to that full episode of Brave Little State. We've got a link on our website, nextnewengland.org. You can also find Brave Little State wherever you get your podcasts. So did that dog bed you purchased from L.L. Bean five years ago get chewed up by the dog? Up until last week, you could just take it back and get a replacement for no charge. But the iconic Maine company is changing its famous unconditional return policy. It had been part of the brand since it started more than a century ago. The change comes as a response to the growing number of customers, and we're not naming names here, who've been taking advantage. Patty White from Maine Public has more. In the five years that Jules Gordon has worked in the customer service department at L.L. Bean in Freeport, she's seen thousands of returns. But there's one that stands out above the rest. I've seen a leg of a chair. Just a leg. Just a leg. Her colleague Dawn Seegers, with nearly 17 years under her belt in customer service, had a similarly perplexing return. Someone returned the case of the sunglasses, and the sunglasses were in the lake. Both customers got what they wanted, a brand new chair and a pair of sunglasses. But it's returns like those that have brought an end to a part of L.L. Bean's brand that's almost as legendary as its bean boot, its unlimited return policy. In a letter sent to customers on Friday, Executive Chairman Sean Gorman announced that returns must now be made within a year and have proof of purchase. The reason? 
A growing number of customers have misinterpreted L.L. Bean's lifetime guarantee to mean a product should last the customer's lifetime, not the products. I've seen too many people that are not being nice. Dressed in L.L. Bean from flannel to foot, Gordon French makes a monthly trip to L.L. Bean with his wife from their hometown of Meredith, New Hampshire. He's all for the stricter return policy because of what he's seen in the returns line over the years, like one man who was holding a box of socks. I was behind him. He says, oh, I buy my socks here every year for Christmas time. And when I get a hole in them, I save them. I bring them back the next bring year. Them all back. And while he was standing there, so, oh, my shoes aren't right either. And he took his shoes off and ran, got a new pair of shoes. Customer Molly Grenier of Lewiston says she's also witnessed highly suspect returns. Just coming here to return things, I see people with trash bags full of stuff that they've probably bought at garage sales and from their grandparents or whatnot, so you know that they didn't just buy it and it's defective. It's so You get a gift card and you can purchase anything you want. These kinds of abuses have doubled in the past couple of years, according to L.L. Bean, accounting for 15 percent of all returns. Nearly all of the customers Maine Public Radio spoke to said they supported L.L. Bean's stricter return policy. But Richard Lindell of Limerick was miffed about a shoe return his wife made on Friday that resulted in a partial refund. He wonders if it would have been a full refund under the old policy. Satisfaction guaranteed. If they rip on you and they're no good, that's not satisfied. There are exceptions to the new one-year return policy if a product is truly defective. And customer service manager Jules Gordon says customers will still get great service. The training is you're in this green shirt. You're 100% customer focused. You do what's right for the person in front of you and you do it with a smile. And from now on, with a somewhat more restricted return policy. That was Patty White reporting. So you think there might be some complaints about L.L. Bean's new return policy? Well, how about complaints coming to the Berkshire Museum in Pittsfield, Massachusetts? It flouts all standards of museum practices. It leaves the current museum leadership intact, um, despite all the evidence of the problems that occurred under its watch. That's Leslie Farron, spokesperson for the group Save the Art, speaking to New England Public Radio. Her group has been protesting the Berkshire Museum's plans over the last several months to sell works of art, including two Norman Rockwell paintings, to fund renovations and boost its endowment. She's reacting to a deal between the museum and the state attorney general's office, which will allow the sale of up to 40 works. Part of the deal allows Norman Rockwell's painting Shuffleton's Barbershop to be sold to a, quote, U.S. nonprofit museum, which will then loan it to the Norman Rockwell Museum in nearby Stockbridge for up to two years. Well, it's in the hands of a public institution. We're really grateful for that. But the other 39 paintings don't have any of those same stipulations or protections. But the vice president of the board for the Berkshire Museum, Ethan Klepitar, says he's excited by the deal. Not only do we get to keep uh, Norman Rockwell Shuffleton's Barbershop in the public eye, but we get to raise a, a sufficient funds that we can have an endowment that will keep this museum open for generations, allow us to truly care for our collection um, in a way that we can't now. A group of Berkshire Museum members said it will press forward in a lawsuit attempting to block the sale. And two art museum industry groups have come out against the recent deal, saying they don't meet the ethical standards of the museum world. Klepitar, though, says this deal means the survival of the institution. We made a decision that the most ethical thing to do was stay true to our purpose, stay true to our mission, make sure this museum stayed open, make sure it could continue to serve its community and fulfill that educational purpose to, to educate the kids and the broader community in the arts, sciences and cultural history of humankind. 
The agreement still has to be approved by the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, and we'll keep following this story. Coming up, a future for New Bedford that depends on a new technology and an old tale of the sea. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. We've been following the story of the controversial Northern Pass Energy Project, which is now on hold. The nearly 200-mile-long transmission line through New Hampshire would have brought in hydropower from Canada, but recently got blocked by regulators in that state. Eversource, the big utility that owns the project, plans to appeal that decision. And New Hampshire's governor, Chris Sununu, isn't happy about it either. He told radio station WTSN that Northern Pass has been, quote, railroaded. And when you look at what the factors were that they considered in taking that vote, they, they just couldn't be more wrong. They couldn't be more wrong. I mean, this was clearly a, a pre-staged decision, I think. The uncertainty around Northern Pass isn't that surprising, given the loud opposition to the project, but several other much smaller renewable energy developments, including solar arrays on farmland, face their own problems. In Connecticut, Patrick Scahill reports that it's not state regulators, but small towns that are pushing back. Kathy Austin is a state senator, and she's co-chair of Connecticut's powerful Appropriations Committee. She's also first selectman of a small rural town in eastern Connecticut called Sprague. And she can tell you that when it comes to siting a 20-megawatt solar project there, the politics are complicated. It's more of a gray discussion than a black-and-white discussion. Think Byzantine politics with a modernist, clean energy edge and a laundry list of bureaucratic players, like the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. It issued a request for clean energy projects in 2013. From 47 proposals, it chose two, including Sprague. So we learned about it in the newspaper, actually. But the town still didn't know where exactly the project was going. Which brings us to our next bureaucratic player, the State Siting Council. Anything that's of a utility size is determined by the Siting Council, is not determined by the town. Uh, so our planning and zoning uh, had nothing to do with this project. A location was ultimately finalized with the Siting Council signing off in 2015, which raised all sorts of concerns among abutters, those people who own abutting property. That whole not-in-my-backyard thing. I, I think that we have to be careful of that, too, because we do need green energy. So I think that there's a lot more to the discussion than just saying, don't cut down any trees and don't use any farmland. About 50 miles west in the town of Simsbury, siting solar on farmland has been a big hang-up. The developer, Deepwater Wind, wants to build a solar project on about 290 acres of space, some of which was farmed. The siting council says they can, but many abutters are still holding out. I just never expected something like that when I moved up here. During a recent public meeting, John Marktell and several other residents, mostly those living adjacent to the project, came before town officials to urge them to appeal the decision. This is going to change the character of our town. It would greatly impact my property and, of course, my property value. To not appeal at this point would basically be conceding and hoping for the best. So just a few minutes later, the town did appeal. 
Eric Wellman is Simsbury's first selectman. He says he thinks there is a way that the project can be built in town, but that Simsbury appealed because it wants public safety concerns addressed in writing. So it's really important to us that there's a uh, comprehensive soil testing plan, water testing plan, um, among other things. I would say uh, dropping our appeal um, is contingent on um, us being comfortable that those plans are sufficient. Sprague's Kathy Austin says that's a good idea. Talk to the neighbors. Uh, uh, make sure that you have documented any issue they might have with their land right up front. And that's something that I would have done a lot earlier. That's because in November, construction stalled on the Sprague solar project. Cutbacks to trees made stormwater runoff to nearby properties so bad that the state issued a cease and desist order, stopping work. Austin says construction has since started back up. And more than four years later, she's hopeful that work on the Sprague solar farm will wrap up next month. Still, she says citing big solar means more communities might have to put state and regional needs before their own. And if we want to meet our renewable energy goals, projects like these must be built in someone's backyard. That's Connecticut Public Radio's Patrick Scahill. New Bedford, Massachusetts, was on the front page of the New York Times this past weekend, not in a good way. Back in October, fishing magnate Carlos Rafael, a.k.a. the Codfather, was sentenced to 46 months in federal prison for mislabeling his catch and for money laundering. But with Rafael in prison, the men who worked for him are barred from catching ground fish with his boats. Some of Rafael's boats and permits have been seized by regulators. As the New York Times reports, the ripple effects can be felt across the usually bustling port of New Bedford, which has gone eerily silent. But while the fishing industry sits in limbo, another industry is just gearing up off of Massachusetts's south shore, offshore wind. Right now, the Commonwealth is developing what could be the nation's first large-scale offshore wind project, and New Bedford wants it. Rhode Island Public Radio's environmental reporter Avery Brookins takes a look at that city's bet on offshore wind. So why does New Bedford want to become a leader in offshore wind anyway? Well, Paul Vigent, who's the managing director at the city's Wind Energy Center, says New Bedford is the prime location for it. It's windy, 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 just off our coast. Vigent adds, a couple hundred miles off New Bedford's coast, the water isn't as deep compared to other parts of the country. That makes it a lot easier to install and maintain turbines to harness all of that wind. It's a unique physical property of the earth that every day, every night, the Gulf Stream in the ocean collides with the northern jet stream in the atmosphere, and it creates this dynamic, sustainable, renewable energy wind source. Vigent himself is the Wind Energy Center. He works with the Port of New Bedford and the city's Economic Development Council to advocate for offshore wind. So for the eight past eight years, we've been at chamber of commerce meetings, business meetings, community meetings, rotary meetings, just informing people about the importance of this and the need to get ready. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, wind turbine service technician is projected to be the second fastest growing occupation over the next decade. And New Bedford is working to become a hub for jobs like these and other work related to offshore wind. Eric Hansen opens the door to his commercial fishing vessel, Endeavor, that's docked at a shipyard in Fairhaven. He walks down a narrow metal staircase to a small cramped space he calls the pit. Regular cruise quarters, just a pile of books. We can sleep 17 on this boat. 
Hansen's boat harvests scallops and typically travels through the area where the wind turbines would be. He says when fishermen got word of Massachusetts' plan to build a large-scale wind energy project, they had one main concern. Location is the biggest, is the biggest part of the issue that fishermen have with the turbines. Location matters because spinning blades confuse the instruments fishermen use to navigate through fog on their way back from fishing trips. Because of that, Hansen says fishermen would have to go miles out of their way to navigate around wind farms. Fishermen, when they're coming home from, from a grueling trip at sea, typically very, very tired and uh, don't need an extra burden on, on a very, very tired person because then you get a catastrophe. According to Hansen, Massachusetts has been going about siting offshore wind projects the right way. He says they're listening to what fishermen have to say and have already cut the Massachusetts wind energy area in half to accommodate commercial fishermen. But he'd like to see them establish transit lanes through the wind farm so boats have an easier path back to port. Edward Anthes Washburn is executive director of the Port of New Bedford. He says the port supports more than 6,200 jobs and has an economic impact of $9.8 billion. 90% of that is tied to commercial fishing or fish processing. But Anthes Washburn says New Bedford needs to diversify its business opportunities, and they're looking to offshore wind. The scale of our infrastructure is perfect. We're blessed with ge- geographical advantages. You know, We're closest to the actual turbines or where they will be. Um, so, you know, offshore wind is a, is a big part of what we hope will be part of the port's portfolio in the future. Right now, the port is undergoing a more than $200 million commercial makeover to prepare for the offshore wind industry, including the construction of a marine commerce terminal a few years ago financed by the state. The terminal supports the construction and deployment of offshore wind projects and is the first of its kind in the United States. Anthes Washburn believes commercial fishermen and offshore wind developers can work together effectively. It's going to be impossible for everybody to be on the same page in terms of everything, but I think regular and consistent open communication at this stage through the end of the construction. I think that it, it can work out well for both industries. But is that just wishful thinking? Is New Bedford setting its sights too high on the success of offshore wind? Paul Vigent with the Wind Energy Center doesn't think so. We've prepared. We've used these eight years of knowledge development to get ourselves ready to talk to these companies, to figure out what they need, to get in place what they need. And now it's time to launch. Back at the shipyard in Fairhaven, standing on Eric Hansen's boat, you can hear the grinding of steel on a boat nearby as painters prep for painting. Commercial fishing boats like these could be navigating around wind turbines as early as 2021. Final approval of offshore wind projects in Massachusetts is expected this summer. That's Avery Brookins reporting. It's part of a Rhode Island public radio project called One Square Mile, where they're examining life in New Bedford, including not just the impact of wind, but also the impact of a classic piece of fiction on the city. As John Bender reports, New Bedford's the destination for fans of the world's most famous fishing story. Even if you haven't read Herman Melville's 1851 novel, Moby Dick, you probably know the story. A man named Ishmael hops aboard a ship with a colorful crew in search of a white whale. Lydia Peel is a big fan. If you let Moby Dick into your life, it changes your life. 
Now Peel is in New Bedford, the city that helped inspire Melville's novel. She's here for the annual Moby Dick Marathon, 24 hours straight of reading every single word of the book. The words of Moby Dick just, like no other book, inspire me to read it aloud. And she's not alone. Each year, hundreds of fans gather to listen to the story, many following along with their own dog-eared copies. As most young candidates for the pains and penalties of whaling stop at this same New Bedford, to embark on their voyage. Organizers say the marathon has ballooned in recent years, with visitors from across the globe and a wait list of hopeful readers. Lydia Peels read the novel four times and counting. She flew from Nashville through a snowstorm for this. Yes, I was prepared to come if I had to hike here. As nearby waterfront cities like Portsmouth, New Hampshire and Portland, Maine cash in on a growing tourism industry, New Bedford's tourism director, Dagny Ashley, hopes to lure more visitors with this famous literary connection. When we're trying to promote New Bedford and sell New Bedford, as soon as we say Moby Dick, you know, the light bulb goes on. That's because the book, long a staple on high school reading lists, is having a moment, says UConn literature professor Mary Burkaw. Um, Moby Dick is definitely, you know, part of a new resurgence. There's such, such a huge interest in it right now. It's just astounding. So why does this epic novel have such staying power? I think it's partly the the big fundamental questions that Melville's asking in the book. Somehow they keep appealing to people. Even in a day when when people do social media, when things are shorter and simpler, this book is still you know, going. And city tourism officials say the number of people visiting their city has increased in the last several years. New Bedford is well suited to capitalize on interest in the book. Once the whaling capital of the world, the city is dotted with emblems of its past. You can still visit the Seaman's Bethel just across the street from the Whaling Museum, a house of worship built to encourage morality in wayward sailors. Visitors still make the pilgrimage to see the pew where Herman Melville once prayed. So it's thought that this is where Herman Melville sat and um, got his inspiration for the book. In the past year, the Bethel drew more than 20,000 visitors. And there are more modern additions to the roster of Melville-themed attractions. You can grab a bite to eat at Whaler's Tavern or drink a pint at the newly opened Moby Dick Brewing Company. That's a hand pump. It's the old English what they call cask engine. Brewmaster Scott Brunel pours a freshly tapped keg of English porter called Glorious Goni, a slang term for an albatross. All the beers here are named for parts of the book, including the Irish amber, Ish My Ale. Get it? So has Brunel, a New Bedford native, read the book? If you grew up around here, you have to read it, usually your sophomore year, I believe. Back then, I thought it was very long and <laughs> a little long-winded. Brunel says he's read it since he got the job here, and he appreciated it more the second time. Superfan Lydia Peel says she's already thinking about reading Moby Dick again. At its heart, it is a book about America, and the whale ship, of course, is this beautiful microcosm of the world. There's men on that whale ship from all corners of the globe, all religions, all faiths, all races, and you know, they're all out there together, and they're, uh, they're forced to get along. Now that's an idea worth raising a glass for. That's John Bender from Rhode Island Public Radio reporting. We've got a link on our website to the One Square Mile series at nextnewengland.org. Coming up, Palestinian stories told in Cambridge. It's next.
Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. An art professor recently spent four days painting, in public, a six-foot-tall portrait of Trayvon Martin. Trayvon Martin's the black Florida teen whose murder in 2012 polarized the country. The performance took place at Westfield State University near Springfield, Massachusetts. Last semester at Westfield State, there were numerous reports of racist messages left around campus. As New England Public Radio's Jill Kaufman reports, that has changed the way some see their school. So far, uh, if you count two hours on Saturday, where I stained the canvas, it was, it was almost... Iman Ime is taking a break from this 17-hour public art project, one hour of painting for each year of Trayvon Martin's life. People, about 30, he thinks, have come to watch him over the last few hours. Now it's quiet. On the canvas at this point are two images in red, gray, and black. A face is painted in oil, and a profile is in charcoal. We're looking at Trayvon right now in two instances. Um, One where he's just, it's just a portrait of his face, and the other one almost like a moment, the moment before he died, this moment of terror. This painting, a performance really, takes place in a small auditorium at Westfield State University. While Emet paints, musicians flow in and out, some playing without introduction. This piece was composed by Westfield State senior Kevin Mason, who's a drummer. He made a sound portrait using 911 calls from the night Trayvon Martin was shot. I had a thought in my mind when I heard about what Professor Ime was doing. And I didn't even approach him, he approached me. And then he said, I want you to do something. And I was like, well, great, because I already have an idea. The soul of Trayvon Martin is not alone in this room. The photos of a dozen or so black teenage boys are hung around the room. All were killed between 1916 and 2015. Emmett Till, Jordan Davis, Tamir Rice, Eugene Williams. Emmett ties them together in what he calls a very unfortunate fraternity. I I like the fact that these boys are together, even though we're dealing with decades and decades and decades of of space. And, And the students are seeing, like, as they're reading this, they're like, it's the same thing. It's the same story. This exhibit follows a semester when Westfield State experienced a rash of racist crime. Nearly two dozen reported incidents. Racist notes were slipped under dorm room doors and written on students' dry erase boards. One student reported she was assaulted with racist language directed at her. Ime says on campus it felt like a change in the weather. But it's not like this hasn't happened before. So for everybody who came to me, who, who told me, you know, this is not the Westfield that I know, you know, the, I, I hurt my head rolling my eyes a little, and, and other black students and faculty members the same. My name's Julian Fleron. I teach mathematics. Fleron is white, and he says he doesn't know Emma very well, but he came tonight because it's rare to see someone paint like this. And in his own classes at Westfield State, his students last term came up with mathematical art against hate. Using perspective drawing, he says, and optical illusions, they responded to the racism on campus. But he says this is not a campus problem. This is a national problem. This is an international problem. Um, And my hope that by, you know, what we're seeing tonight and what I'm doing in my classroom, what we're doing is we're sending groups of people forward who can be the change that we wish to see. In the last two hours of this public painting, the auditorium is packed. Many are standing in the back. And Ime begins to mark up 
the finished portrait into 17 sections, like the number of hours he's painted, like the number of years in Trayvon Martin's life. He appears to be crying. Everyone who entered the auditorium was given an envelope. They were asked to open them at the same time. Sixteen people have a card that asks them to help cut the painting up, essentially destroy it. The other cards say, I watched them cut. Emma makes the first slice using a box cutter. Ima Ima has plans for the 17 pieces now lying on the ground. Maybe an entire body of work, he says, that helps us all grow. Is there a way to see this boy as just a boy? He's still a concept in many ways, and he's going to remain one. You can't undo that. What I can do is have a conversation about the problem with, of how we see him and maybe how we see other black boys. Perhaps then, he says, the death of Trayvon Martin and the others in this unfortunate fraternity can mean something new. That's Jill Kaufman reporting. When we hear about Palestinians in the news, it's usually in the context of conflicts or negotiations with Israel. With their stories being so highly politicized, the personal stories of Palestinians don't often make it into the American public. Nadia Abuelazam, a Palestinian-American living in the Boston area, wants to change that. In 2015, she launched a series of events called Palestinians Live, featuring true stories told on stage. The stories are later released on Palestinians Podcast, which Nadia also created. Palestinians Live has hosted shows throughout the Boston area as well as in Washington, D.C. and Michigan. Reporter Annie Sinsabal went to one of their events at the Oberon Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and she brings us this story. It's a Sunday evening and the theater is packed. The mood is festive. The music is loud. The chatter is in English and Arabic. Friends catch up at the bar. Then, suddenly, the music and chatter start to fade away. People rush back to their seats. And a woman in a long red dress walks on stage. She takes the mic and with no introduction, she starts to tell a story. It was my second time in Palestine. This trip was a graduation present from my parents. This is Nadia Belazam, the founder of Palestinians Live. The story Nadia tells is about a trip she took to East Jerusalem with her sister and two cousins when they were teenagers. My sister and I had been to Palestine once before, but we were really young, and at the time we really didn't understand the politics or the occupation. So this trip was going to be different. We were going to have three weeks of fun, but also three weeks of learning. While in East Jerusalem, Nadia stayed with her Aunt Fedia and Uncle Sammy. Nadia says the most memorable moment of the trip was the day they visited a town in the West Bank called Jericho. They rode a cable car to the top of a mountain, had some lunch, and then, as they got ready to head back to East Jerusalem, Sammy mentioned that he and his brother had recently bought a parcel of land in Jericho. He suggested they check up on the land, and so the family piled into Sammy's car. But after about 15 minutes of driving around, Sammy appeared to be lost. We asked him, isn't that the same car we passed like 10 minutes ago? And he admitted at that point that he in fact was lost and did not know where his land was. 
Nadia says she and her sister and cousins were laughing hysterically. He'd stop at a corner with some dirt on it. He'd bend down and take some dirt into his hands. He'd smell it and throw it up in the air and say, nope, this is not my land. And then he'd get to the next corner and he'd lick his finger and he'd put it up in the air and see the wind blow and feel the direction of the wind and say, nope, this isn't my land either. At one point, Sammy asked a police officer for directions while the teenagers giggled wildly in the back seat. Eventually, they gave up on finding Sammy's land. And I realize now that Sammy that day was not really looking for his land. Sammy was really teaching us about what it means to be Palestinian. That this feeling of being lost, a feeling dispossessed, a feeling usurped, was a part of being Palestinian. Nadia says she also learned that day that being Palestinian is not something you can go through alone. It needs to be a collective experience. Palestinians are a people without a country. On top of that, the performers tonight are part of a diaspora. When you add on layers and decades of politics, it gets all the more complicated. Nadia says having a space in Boston to tell their stories has helped the Palestinian community bond and thrive. It really makes me feel like I'm a part of something larger than I am, which um, doesn't happen often as a Palestinian living in the diaspora. Good evening, everyone. Michael John Maria, another performer at the show, told a series of stories about his name. And I am 100% Palestinian-American. And that's true. You would never guess it by the sound of my name. Michael says his parents gave him a common American name with the hope that he wouldn't face the same struggles that they did as immigrants in the U.S. When it came time for Michael to name his newborn son a few months ago, he wanted to give him a name that would have some relevance to his Palestinian heritage. Michael says he combed through a map of Palestine for inspiration. And I looked at the villages that had been wiped out and demolished following the Nakba in the years later. Nakba means catastrophe in Arabic. Palestinians often use it to refer to the War of 1948, when hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were pushed off their land or fled, and the state of Israel was established. Michael's family is from Bethlehem, so he played around with that as a possible name. I couldn't turn Bethlehem into a proper first name, (laughs) try as I might, but near Nablus, I came across a small village by the name of Sebastia, and I thought, I can make that work. And we named him Sebastian, and I like that name. Michael tells me after the show that he takes comfort in knowing that Sebastian will grow up with a Palestinian identity. It's an identity he's proud to pass down. I'm very proud when somebody asks me what my ancestry is for me to say that I'm Palestinian, and I don't know that other generations have necessarily had pride in that. Nadia says Palestinians Live has evolved since she launched it in 2015. People have an excitement about them when they tell their stories now that before they were a little bit more fearful. And we're seeing a lot more excitement and happiness around the sharing of stories and the community around the storytelling that I think, I hope, is an evolution of um, maybe some change that we've created in the community here in Boston and in other parts of the country. So I think that that's the largest change that I'm excited about, this idea of going from fear to hope and joy in the sharing of stories.
That was Annie Sinsabaugh reporting. To hear more stories like these, you can subscribe to Palestinians Podcast or find a link to more information about these events at our website, nextnewengland.org. We're going to end the show with a story from New Hampshire that's captured the imagination of the nation, and it's not about an Olympic athlete. It's about a woman who walked into Sam Safa's Reed's Ferry Market in Merrimack, New Hampshire. She bought a winning ticket for a $560 million Powerball drawing. That's great news for Safa, who talked to ABC News. I get $75,000 as a bonus for selling the ticket, and... uh... Who can say no to money? Well, there's a bit of question about that. Not that the winner, known now as Jane Doe, doesn't want to have the money, but she really doesn't want all the notoriety that comes with it. She's challenged the rule that says once a winning ticket is signed, the owner of that ticket must be known publicly. She wants to protect her privacy. She's a longtime resident of New Hampshire and is an engaged community member, reads her request. She wishes to continue this work and the freedom to walk into a grocery store or attend public events without being known or targeted as the winner of a half billion dollars. But the state's attorney general's office says disclosing the name of lottery winners in New Hampshire is not something done for the sake of curiosity or sales promotion, but instead is a crucial step to ensure the Lottery Commission operates with integrity and accountability. For now, the prize goes unclaimed. A judge will decide the fate of Jane Doe and her ticket soon. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Adam Frenier and Sam Hudson. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. We also had music this week by Huda Asvor and Drum Tam Tam. Thanks to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. If you like this week's show, just follow our Facebook page at Next to New England. We've got stories from around the region, some videos and more. It's facebook.com slash nextnewengland. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio. 